Hey everybody and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon Podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every week. I'm Hugh and back with me today I've got Belle and Holly, both of which from some X. Holly, Belle, how have your weeks been? Oh great, we were just saying, weren't we, what a fantastic week it's been. Really nice, really busy. Um, what have you been up to? How's it all going? It's good. It's been good. Um, we've got, I don't know if we've announced officially on Pigeon yet that we run a nine day fortnight policy at Somex. So I'm very much looking forward to our day off tomorrow. Um, I feel like it's very, very well deserved this week in particular, but it's going to be a good one. I think we all need it. Holly, how's your week been? Yes, it's been a busy week. Brilliant as always, but got the opportunity to travel into London on Wednesday and see Jess Farmery. Um, spent the day with her in WeWork, which was brilliant. Very much looking forward into into the weekend and a new week next week. Today, in case anyone is on a countdown, um, Saturday marks the official beginning of my birthday week. <laughs> so <laughs> big news for all Pigeon Leo fans. Leo season is upon us. You heard it here first. Uh, <laughs> if you are intending on sending Bella a present, just go for it. Pidge PO box. <laughs> it'll, find, it'll find its way. Well, it is great to have you both with me to talk about uh, this week's health tech stories. We've got some great pieces to discuss today. So without further ado, let's kick off. So this week's first story comes to us from Forbes. This AI chatbot has helped doctors treat 3 million people and may be coming to a hospital near you. We obviously talk a, a lot about AI chatbots and AI's use in healthcare on this podcast. Uh, I think there's at least one story every week. Uh, but this one's a really interesting one. Um, it's the news that digital health startup K-Health is looking to scale its artificial intelligence technology in hospitals across the US. And its first investor slash strategic partner is the CDS Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California, which is really exciting. I think it shows the uh, strength of the confidence that's backing it when you've got such significant investors uh, in what is essentially a chatbot uh, for helping clinicians to diagnose conditions. So the principles behind it is that you uh, you put in your data and your information about your condition and the chatbot sifts through the data of millions to suggest a medical condition based on how your condition and the symptoms that you've reported compare to those of many, 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 many others. It takes just five minutes to answer 25 questions and then clinicians can use it to support a diagnosis. Company's an interesting one. K-Health is currently at $52 million in revenue a year, uh, but they are not yet profitable. Um, Cedar sinai have adopted them so far for use in urgent and primary care. Um, and it's looking like it's going to be a positive story for K-Health off the back of this and quite a lot of other coverage for their announcement this week. There's some interesting info about the way it does what it does. Uh, none of the data that people share is shared outside of the app. And all of the information that they're using to train the AI algorithm is from purchasing anonymized data sets and developing predicted algorithms around it. A retrospective study of more than 100,000 K-Health patient visits between October 2022 and January 2023 found that the human doctors and nurses using it agreed with it 84.2% of the time, and with a top-ranked AI diagnosis, 60.9% of the time. That study has not yet been peer-reviewed, but if, it, if these uh, numbers are confirmed, it's going to be a really interesting um, one and potentially a, a really good case study and use case for AI in healthcare. 
Belle, Holly, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, how are you, uh, you know, we've, we've discussed AI in healthcare a lot, but this is one of the sort of first use cases that seems to be uh, being deployed fairly quickly. Yeah, I I would say it's really interesting. I think when we think of AI, I think, you know, we're obviously in this new era where everyone thinks of it as a chat box, chat bot rather, which is super interesting. And the idea that it can save GPs and primary care clinicians a huge amount of time is obviously something which everyone is aware of with kind of appointments being shorter and shorter and um, clinicians being more pressured. One of the things I found particularly interesting about this is um, that study you mentioned, Hugh, in this article, they've they've got a graph from that in here where I think you said it's at 80.80 something percent figure is their average um, recommendation. But there's a there's a graph in this article where they talk about the percentage of cases where doctors chose one of its recommendations. So whilst it's not a medical device, it offers the doctor a sort of suite of suggestions of what it thinks it might be. Um, and then the doctor looks at all the information and the answers that the patient has given and makes, makes its own recommendation. Um, but what's interesting here is that you've got sort of three examples where the doctors choose the recommendations in over like about 98% of cases. So bladder infections, pink eye and common colds, people who are using the tech um, and the tech is saying that they think they've got that, the doctors are agreeing with it and going along with it. But that then plummets down for people with skin rashes, asthma and abdominal pain. If someone's presenting with abdominal pain, doctors are only choosing one of its recommendations 20% of the time. Asthma, 32%. Skin rash, 42%. So I think that average of 80% feels maybe um, a bit more optimistic than it actually is because it's bolstered by these few use cases where it's doing very, very well. And then some other ones where there's still a lot of learning to go. Um, but I'm sure as it, as that more learning comes, as they bring bigger data sets on board, as they talk to more patients and work with more clinical centers, I'm sure that we'll start to see those numbers come up. But right now, I think a lot of doctors would look at that graph and not necessarily feel confident using it across a range of cases when they can see that it's not doing what it says it should to the level they'd want it to yet. I think any doctor would be very, very hesitant taking something that is only working 20% of the time for certain conditions. I think that's really interesting. And I think it taps into a question about whether you want an AI diagnosing you or whether you want an AI supporting that diagnosis or even supporting decision making. I think you can definitely see examples currently now, in, in particularly in something like clinic in primary care, which is uh, AI-supported decision-making uh, for triage teams. So you're getting making sure that patients are accurately referred to the right point of care, but it's not making a diagnosis, it's making a suggestion, and it's basing that suggestion on the information it receives. Uh, there's a point here, which is it looks at how what you told it compares to medical conditions that others within its database have reported and conditions similar to yours. And I wonder if that's an effective way of diagnosing when if you were in face-to-face -face or via telephone with a clinician, uh, they'd be able to choose the questions and prompt you a bit more to get at least some way towards the diagnosis. So I think there's mm. just that question of how far AI at this point can replace. And it's something that Alan Block touches on towards the end of the article, which is just uh, as far as where the technology is headed now and in the future, is there a possibility to fully automate certain diagnosis and treatment? Mm. He thinks so down the road, but... Even he says we're not there yet. So I guess that comes 
raises another question, which is just, you know, how far away are we from certain uses of AI in healthcare? Yeah. It's so hard, isn't it? Because there are some conditions where, like, for example, an autoimmune condition, which is often a cluster of different symptoms that you have to look at in a really holistic way to make that diagnosis. And that's something that even doctors find hard. And it takes people a lot of time often to reach that diagnosis, often years from presenting, first of all, and basically realizing what their different symptoms are. Whereas I think if you're using an AI technology, you're looking at it in a very much singular way. You probably come with one symptom and it it lacks the ability to take that step back and look at that whole that whole picture of a person's health. And I think, well, as we still have those conditions that clinicians themselves find hard, I don't see how we can get to a point where AI can replace that because Doctors still don't know. Like, what is, I mean, if we can get to a point where AI can support that in some way, then I think that's when we're making really exciting technology where we can support doctors to make those really difficult diagnoses. That's kind of my thought. Holly, what do you think? Yeah, I think definitely agree with that, Belle. I think also from from a patient's perspective, when you go and see a, a doctor or a clinician or a nurse in person, like patients value that opportunity to really discuss kind of, you know, their concerns in depth, maybe kind of different symptoms they've been having, you know, previous you know, health conditions or kind of past experiences. And I think, yes, as you said, like there is kind of opportunity here for AI to kind of support in some of the more maybe common conditions, um, which, you know, there are kind of similar symptoms across patients like it says here kind of common colds and things like that but I really think we can't forget when it comes to will AI or when will AI support doctors on a wide level that patients really value kind of that in-person opportunity. We know that during COVID and things like that patients are much more comfortable with technology and talking to doctors over video or phone call or you know in one virtual settings but they are still connecting with that person one-on-one and I think Mm. if you remove that and you remove you know often when you're you go to see a doctor you say certain things and you you don't necessarily mention some other things because you don't think they're relevant but a doctor can maybe eke them out of you because they might sense that Mm. you're feeling hesitant about something or sense that you feel embarrassed or don't want to share or don't think it's relevant and they can ask those questions that sort of gently guide you in a way that an AI robot or even just any sort of automated list doesn't necessarily have the sensitivity to do that. It just runs through its questions and and gives you that outcome and lacks lacks that one-to-one thing. So I mean, we are moving to a place where I think both clinicians and patients are more comfortable with technology. So I have no doubt that in a year, in two years, in 10 years, this conversation will have progressed massively. But I'd be really interested to see to what extent. Absolutely. The doctor's not going anywhere. Uh, AI won't be replacing them anytime soon. Um, but it, I think what really does stand out is that these technology, technologies like K-Health that make it easier, faster, and more efficient to get information that the doctor can use to diagnose are going to become increasingly more important. Our next story comes to us from Health Tech World, bridging the communication divide and tackling health inequality. So uh, this is 
about communication and barriers in healthcare that have far-reaching implications and are a key contributor to health inequality. Now, a unique app is aiming to bridge the communication divide through the power of digital. This is about CardMedic, who are a great solution that's been helping to address some of the communication barriers that exist in healthcare and that can lead to some sometimes very negative, sometimes quite tragic outcomes. Uh, Belle, you've had a look at this story. So yes, this is an app that is basically trying to overcome the communication barriers in healthcare. And there are a few different ways in which that presents. The actual app itself, CardMedic, was formed through sort of the difficulties that people were coming to them with during COVID, where people who had um, maybe hearing difficulties, um, maybe struggled to understand um, a different language that wasn't their first language, were finding that so much harder when people were wearing lots of PPE and covering their mouths. They couldn't lip read. They couldn't necessarily hear the sounds as well as they could before. And so I think that was sort of their impetus for starting this company. But actually barriers exist in lots of different ways. There are those barriers that I've just mentioned, not being able to you know, hear properly, not being able to lip read, that sort of thing. But there's also the fact that at the moment, if someone does have a language barrier, there actually isn't very much structure in place to support people with that. So the ideal scenario would be that a translator comes in. Hospitals often don't have the you know facilities available to offer that to everyone. So they kind of fall back onto sort of DIY techniques, writing things down on paper and that sort of thing. But actually that then relies on that person being able to read English, which they might not be able to do or being able to, you know, read that certain language. And then the other thing that people often fall back on is relying on family and friends to act as translators. And I mean, I know people that this has affected personally. Like when I was doing my PhD, my supervisor's wife, um, she had a brain hemorrhage, it was really serious and she's fine now, but when she woke up from her coma, she forgot that she could speak English. So she had been living in England for the last 30 years. She had kids here. She you know, had a husband. They, they all spoke English at home. And she woke up and just spoke Maltese. Not only could she not communicate with the people looking after her, they couldn't communicate with her. And it then had to fall to her husband, who hadn't spoken Maltese for 30 years, to act as the translator. So that's a huge burden on family and friends as well, as well as the hospital facilities who aren't able to talk to and collect the information that they need. And then the patient itself, who's sort of stuck in the middle, not being able to get across what they need to. So this is kind of an interesting app in that they're trying to overcome these multiple barriers. The app does this by providing sort of a what they call a library of scripts and they replicate common clinical conversations and they do this in 49 languages at the moment. So some of the features are multilingual translations, so being able to obviously translate from a language that you don't understand to one that you do, text that is easy to read for people that might have difficulties um, doing that otherwise, and also sign language for people that obviously can't hear and, and communicate in another way. So by doing this, they actually connect patients with not only professionals from a broad range of cultural backgrounds to ensure that things are translated appropriately and accurately, but it also gives patients that context around the healthcare that they're giving. So at the moment, patients, you know, if they don't understand what the healthcare professional is saying to them, not only do they not understand the condition that they might have, they don't understand what the prognosis is. They might not understand the risks associated with certain surgeries or certain treatments. 
They might not understand how they should take medication for how long, what that should be, and what the risks associated with that are. So there's so many micro decisions that are wrapped up into understanding these things that patients aren't getting the full picture of. So, I mean, it's obviously interesting. We work in communication. We understand how important it is to say the right things to the right people and for them to have that full understanding at all times. And I think this is something which has been disproportionately affecting vulnerable people. And actually, one of the quotes from this article that I really, really thought was fascinating said that the social determinants of health, which we know are housing, education and income, intertwine with language barriers, cultural differences and limited accessibility, forming a complex web that can perpetuate a cycle of inequity. So we know that it's not just a case of someone not being able to understand things, but we know actually that their health, the housing, the education, the income, the language, it all interconnects. And so we really just need to do better by people. And I think this is an exciting step on that road. Yeah, this is a fascinating example of the power of health tech, isn't it? Mm-hmm. A a sort of simple on the face of it, but very clearly mapped around user needs, both patient and clinician, is helping to address what is absolutely a challenge of doing more with less and ensuring that the interpreters, that communicators are there to support conversations where there are accessibility and language barriers and addressing, frankly, a problem that it's almost shocking that we haven't addressed up to now. You know, for this to come out of COVID and the challenges in yeah. communicating when everyone's covered in PPE. And yet, as uh, there's a great stat in the article, that an estimated 30% of medical litigation in the US stems from communication breakdowns in healthcare. And you could be sure that you would have imagined, in particularly in a country like the US, where so much of it is about, you know, the return and on spend, return on investment, that this would have been an issue that was addressed long, long before 2020. I think we can be glad it has been addressed or is being addressed and uh, a very much a model for other health techs to follow. Yeah, it's baffling. Like there's there's another thing they mentioned in the article saying that just before that stat actually that patients who cannot effectively communicate with their healthcare providers face increased morbidity and mortality rates, struggle with medication adherence, experience higher rates of mental health issues and endure longer hospital stays or unplanned readmissions. So not only is that an issue for the patient, but like you say, in the context of financial return on health, the cost of healthcare, having to pay for people to then get further mental health treatment, to be in hospital for longer, to come back to hospital, like it all feeds into this web, like, and it just seems at its most obvious, like, obviously we need to be able to talk to people, to communicate with people. Why on earth? Like, it feels like it should have been solved a hundred years ago, not just even 10 just feels like it should be the bedstone upon which everything was built. Uh, I agree with both of you. I think, as you said, Hugh, like brilliant example of of health tech that's, you know, has been born born out of COVID. I think the only the only kind of example I would add is obviously at a time as well where clinicians are particularly stretched. And I think it says in the article here, you know, hospitals do have a, a kind of legal obligation to provide kind of translators and interpreters, but we know at the moment within hospitals you know they're heavily kind of stretched and and under a lot of pressure um so i think you know this app is a brilliant example of of kind of where health tech and support you know clinicians can go and have this at their kind of disposal as and when they need it and i'm looking forward to to yeah to seeing how how far this company goes and what what kind of holds for for its implications in the future 
Brilliant. And if you don't know Carbmetic already, I highly recommend you go and check them out. They have won awards for what is frankly an amazing solution needed at exactly the right time. Um, as the article says, they're now in use in 25 hospitals across the UK and US, including five integrated care systems. And I think we can only expect that to grow. Our next story comes to us from TechCrunch. Intel Capital, Kozler lead $27 million investment into CyFox Health's at-home blood testing tech. CyFox Health are introducing a more advanced blood testing that uses silicon photonic chip technology to put a lab-grade health testing device in every home. It's thought this will improve the way we manage chronic disease, getting rid of bottlenecks that exist that with current testing approaches. Uh, their, their boast is that the semiconductor technology they're using is the same technology that transformed modern internet connectivity. So, Belle, you've uh, had a look at this story. Uh, what should we be taking away? Yes, gotta love the words blood testing tech on the pages of TechCrunch, always piques the interest. So, as Hugh explained, this is a um, company that is trying to bring medical lab-grade testing for chronic diseases into the home. The way that this company is approaching this, and by the way, the company is called CyFox Health. I think you probably did mention that. But um, in the past, um, companies have focused on these sort of really cheap collection techniques. So pieces of paper, small vials that people wee into, dip into things, we all get it. And what they, they would do is they would then send that thing to a lab where it would be processed. Now, what this company is doing that is different is they're trying to miniaturize the equipment that is created in a lab. So lab-grade lab grade machines that obviously are able to detect for diseases, miniaturize them onto a very small silicon chip. This is where our internet connectivity technology comes in so that it is of a size that can be in a person's home. Now, the great thing about this over having to do really cheap collection techniques and send them off is obviously you might not get all the data in that way because you might not dip it in for long enough or you might not get enough coverage or maybe it gets lost in the post or maybe it gets sent back and damaged in some way. So you've got all these limitations on um, the quality of the data that it can produce. And you've also got to wait for that data to come back to you. It's got to be processed by the lab and come back. So by miniaturizing the lab onto a chip, what they're doing is inheriting all the functionality of those lab-grade instruments. So this includes things like multiplexing, capability, sensitivity, all these sorts of words that we'd associate with lab-based equipment, but bringing it into the home. And what's really exciting about this is it means that we get high-grade data, we get it quickly, and also we can do it regularly. So I think, and I'll be really interested to hear both your views on this, but like as the consumer is more and more used to taking their own health into their own hands, so we do it with the way we track our sleep, we do it with the way we track our exercise, um, we do it with the way you know people with diabetes are used to you know tracking now with an app. They don't have to necessarily go into hospital and do things anymore. So with this kind of, ownership of our health data, having the availability to just regularly at home test yourself and screen yourself for chronic diseases and gain that picture of your health over time. So instead of having to do it once a year, you can do it every month or so and see what's changed. We get this really rich view of our health um, and it really kind of allows people to yeah, take that ownership piece and also feel really empowered so that if they do see that change, they can 
go to their doctor or go to their clinician and say, look, I've noticed this change in this certain thing. I'm a bit worried about it, or I'm not quite sure what that means. Would you be able to, you know, describe that to me? Or would you be able to do some more tests just to clarify that for me? And it really means that people feel empowered in their medical, their medical, you know, support that they can offer down the line as well. Um, so I think it's, I think it's really exciting. I know Holly, you've got thoughts on um, the access piece around this because it's not cheap, as I'm sure you can imagine. So love to kind of hear your thoughts on that. Firstly, I think kind of the most important thing here is, yeah, rightly, as you said, kind of giving people that opportunity to kind of monitor um, and feel empowered to kind of track, track their own health over time. And I think particularly as kind of, you know, digital health and health tech and various kind of devices are coming out and, you know, consumers are becoming more used to, you know, monitoring their sleep, as you said, um, kind of various aspects of the health over time that, you know, blood testing kits will only become another aspect of that. Um, and I think in terms of, you know, particularly people that are, are used to tracking their health or, you know, are interested in this type of thing may not, we don't necessarily need to wait until there's a problem to go, you know, go and see a doctor and, and have a have a blood test. Um, so I think from the sense of empowering patients to kind of, you know, take that in, into their own hands, um, then, then this is brilliant. But yeah, on the access side, I think in the article, now correct me guys if I'm wrong, because I think there's kind of various prices in here, but so currently the company offers a test kit and it currently tests for 17 biomarkers to your basic panel in, term, in the areas of inflammation, cardiovascular health, metabolic fitness, hormone balance, etc. Um, now this is sold on a subscription basis. So you you buy a test kit that's $95 and then you kind of have a monthly subscription, which is $16 on top of that. Now it does say that this includes kind of perks, you know, access to glucose monitors and personalized biohacking tools. Um, be interested to know more about what that means. Um, but essentially kind of looking at this over time, this adds up to, you know, just short of nearly $300 a year. Sure, for some people, that's totally fine. But thinking from the access piece, you know, while we're moving to kind of a place where as a society as a whole, we're becoming more used to this idea of you know, monitoring health over time, where does that leave us in terms of the equity? So I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, maybe Hugh, if you want to dive in on that. I think that's a hugely interesting point. And I think it does beg the question of reimbursement for products like these. I think this could be a I think you know we've touched on the we've touched on the point about patient empowerment, and I think that's really important piece because uh, we're so used to stories of people who go to their clinician saying that something doesn't feel right, but they don't necessarily have the, any backing for it or any basis for it, and being told, "Don't worry about it; it's normal. Go away." And then, as you said, Holly, you do get to the point where someone says okay, no, something's actually gone wrong and we missed mm -hmm. it. And I think technologies like this could be a really vital part of making it easier, making it just simpler for patients to empower the, and to empower patients to get them to their clinician and say, look, I have this variation, I have this change, mm -hmm. and a doctor can make an evidence-based decision off the back of it rather than reassuring. That access piece, I think, if we get it right, if we get the reimbursement side right, and if this technology, it's really important for us to point out at this point, if the company has not yet released the technology, it's not out. They are still using the paper strip approach, I believe. I think we just need to check the article on that one. But if it does work and it, uh, it's, uh, we get that reimbursement point, we get that clinical evidence 
point, there is a real empowerment story to tell here. And I think that's going to be really important. Uh, we're not the only ones who think so. Uh, a number of fairly large investors have lined up behind the company uh, with uh, what appears to be a $27 million funding round, uh, $10 million in C and $17 million in new Series A capital. Uh, so obviously, investors believe that this could be a really, really have a really powerful impact too. Yeah. So actually, uh, just to clarify that price point. Um, so yeah, they don't have an at-home device yet, um, but the pricing that they're hoping to do when they do develop it is a subscription-based model. At they've said less than a hundred dollars a month, so I assume that means more than ninety. Else <laughs> they'd have said less than that. So yeah, that ramps up massively. So. Yes, you don't have to rely on paper strips or whatever, but reimbursing 100 quid a month, I don't know what the exchange rate is, but <laughs> why not? It's a huge a huge amount of money. So how how do we do that and does it does it usher in this idea of potentially kind of community care as well? You know, can people maybe go somewhere that's not necessarily a GP mm-hmm. clinic to have these regular kind of check-ins or something like that, which I also think is a really interesting access piece like how to bring healthcare into the community in a way that is not necessarily always going to a doctor and feeling like you're wasting a doctor's time when it's just getting those everyday touch points. And then when you do go to the doctor, as you said, he, you're bringing evidence and you feel like it's it's that moment where you're actually going to find out the answer. Yeah, and also reassuring as well. Finding out that there's no change is obviously incredibly reassuring when you might be worried I also think from the standpoint of, you know, in terms of there's many, many kind of more technologies like this that we're seeing kind of emerge, that those price points are going to come down. So I think in terms of that access piece as well, like obviously in this company's in its early phases in that the product's not yet released. But I think as we see more and more of these kind of technologies, they will, you know, the accessibility will improve. Well, thank you, everyone. That was the Health Tech Pigeon team analysing the health tech news so you don't have to. Thank you to Holly and Bell for joining me. Join us again next week and check out all of the articles we've talked about, plus some of the best jobs and pods in health tech at healthtechpigeon.com. Thanks again and see you next week. Mm-hmm.